Well, hey, good morning, everybody. Sorry to interrupt the conversation. That's like my favorite thing. I love that. I love that we have a church of people that will talk to each other and uh, truly engage. You know, um, I've been to churches where the greeting was probably the most awkward point of the service because you're just kind of like, hi, you guys are crazy, exchanging phone numbers, you know, getting lining up, babysitting, like, let's go to dinner. Um, so, and that's for the moms and dads. Like, so I'm glad you're here. Welcome to the creek. Uh, we are going to uh, dive into this. We, we're in Matthew 26 still. And uh, if you've got your Bible, go there. If you don't have a Bible, we've got some on the end of the rows for you. Uh, you can take that and make that your own. Write your name in it. Uh, we want you to have a Bible for, for you. Um, Matthew 26. This has been, been a long journey up to the cross. And uh, I really wanted to take our time and really understand kind of the things Jesus is going through as we journey to the cross, and as we see him being faithful in carrying out his life's mission. The one thing that I keep coming back to uh, every week in, in, in reading through Scripture and the story of, of Jesus walking to the cross is, is how, uh, how moved I am uh, that he was willing to do this for me. Um, and he didn't just do it for me. He did it for us. Uh, that he was willing to walk the road that he walked. And at any point through the suffering that we've been studying through the last couple of weeks, he could tap out. I mean, he could call upon thousands of angels to, to come and rescue him. And in the, in the plan and the process of human redemption, he willingly submitted himself, not just to the cross, but to the journey before the cross. I think sometimes we minimize the fact that Jesus is God in human form and came to earth and dwelt among men. I love how John says it is that the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. I think we minimize and, and, and forget sometimes the fact that Jesus was God in man form and walked this life. And as we see this journey to the cross, we see the suffering that, that he takes on. And he suffered so that we could understand what it's like to have God suffer. And I will tell you this, we don't read of Jesus' suffering so that God could experience and say, let me, let me see what it's like to suffer. I don't know if you've ever fed your kids baby food and you think, look, I'm going to try it too. And you, you gag. Um, and so you're like never going to try it again, but you're going to force your kids to eat it. You know, God's not sitting in heaven going, okay, there's, life is going to involve suffering. So you know, let me taste it just to see what it's going to be like. God knows suffering. God doesn't have to insert himself into humanity to understand our suffering. I think we have the benefit of seeing Jesus walk this road to the cross so we understand that God understands. Does that make sense? I mean, because sometimes we think we get into the, to life and life gets heavy, life gets hard, and we start thinking, God, do you understand what's going on here? Do, do you really see this pain? Do you really see what's happening? And God says, Absolutely. And, and I not only saw it from the beginning, and I see it right now, but I see the end. And God's goal through everything we go through is redemption, is to refine our character so that we can be transformed into the likeness and image of His Son so that when we go through pain, when we go through suffering, we go through it with a godly character. That when we go through times of, of, of plenty and times when life is great, we go through it with a godly character so that in everything... We give God the glory through everything we go through, whether we like it or not, whether we're comfortable or uncomfortable, our goal is to give glory to God. 
in our marriages, in our families, in our finances, in our homes, in our jobs, in our schools, in our church, in our neighborhoods and communities. Our goal is to give God glory because He has given us everything, the life, the breath, and everything that we have. And we're going to get into this, Matthew 26. And uh, this is uh, right after uh, Jesus is arrested. I did some, I did the some looking, in, and we'll probably finish Matthew within a month. I know some of you are probably sad about that. Some of you are probably like, finally, <laughs> year and a half in the book of Matthew. Um, but don't worry, we'll go right back into another one. But uh, Matthew 26, and, and the, I want us to look at some interesting things that are, that are going on here. We're going to start in verse 57. Um, Jesus has been arrested. Uh, the, the process is he has ridden into Jerusalem, cleared the temple. He's had it out with the religious leaders. They had begun a plot to arrest him and get him out of the way because he was challenging their authority. He was challenging their financial abilities, and uh, he was basically diagnosing them with some serious religious junk. But what I love about Jesus is he's never going to give us a diagnosis without saying he's the cure. So when we all through Matthew 21 through through 25, Jesus is saying, you've got a problem. I'm diagnosing some serious spiritual issues. There's, a, the, there's this oppression of religion that is being put on the people. And, and he says, but not only do you have a problem, 26 and 27, he says, I'm the solution. And he says, I'm going to walk the road. I'm going to go to the cross so that this can be fixed. Because Jesus, the, Jesus did not die so that we could live in a religious system. He didn't die so that we could live a mundane life. He didn't die so that we could just merely exist. He said that I have come that they may have life and life to the full. And I understand that that full life sometimes gets pressured. And we have to deal with stuff that attacks that full life. But Jesus says, I didn't come to die so you could just merely exist. I've created you with a purpose. Just as Jesus was born and was created for a purpose to live a perfect life, to walk the road to the cross, to be laid in a tomb, for the resurrection to happen and walk out of that tomb and then ascend into heaven, that was a plan. That was the plan for the life of Jesus from the beginning of the world so that redemption of mankind could happen through that. I think we minimize our life sometimes and think, there's no plan for my life. If only I had some idea of what God wanted for my life, I might be able to live it with more intensity and more passion. And when we get back to the basics and say our life is to glorify God, the intensity and passion to live our life comes through how do I give God glory through this situation so that whether I face good or bad, I'm giving glory to God. And so God can use me in every situation. I think of the Apostle Paul and all of the situations that he has been in. And you would want to talk about a man of constant sorrows. There are times his life is a country song. And, and he just didn't have a dog, you know. That dog probably left him along with his woman. But, uh, but he knew how to give God glory in everything. And I think we, we tend to think if I could only be as big in the faith as Paul, if I could be that kind of powerhouse. You know what? God has created you with a purpose so that you can make an impact in the world that he's placed you in. I mean, in Acts, he tells us that he appointed and set the times for us to be where we are. He placed you exactly where you are so that you may reach out and find him and that people may come to know who he is. 
and give glory to God. And Jesus is walking this path. The disciples deserted him when he was arrested. They fled. And then Jesus is brought to the chief priests, the religious leaders, and before the Sanhedrin. This is verse 57. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. Let me, let me stop. I want to kind of pull out some commentary as we walk through this. Um, Peter's following Jesus at a distance. Think about this. Just a little while earlier, Jesus tells Peter what's going to happen. He's like, you're going to disown me. Before the rooster crows, before morning, you're going to disown me three times, Peter. Peter's like, I will not, even if I have to die with you, Jesus, it's not going to happen. And then in the garden, when it, when it got really intense, when, when things were not going as though the disciples had thought they would, when the, they're following the Messiah, and he doesn't rise up and squash the oppression, that he willingly submits to the oppression, the disciples are like, this is, this is contrary to what we think the Messiah is going to be. I mean, we, we think that God's going to come storming into our problems with a gunslinging attitude and take out all of our opposition. Sometimes God says, why don't you submit? Why don't you humble yourself? And so all of the disciples fled, but Peter's following Jesus at a distance. I know a lot of people in life that like to follow Jesus at a distance. They don't want to get in there. They, they, they tend to... They only want to be associated when things are good. And, and I'm guilty of this. I mean, I, I like it when, when things are going good because it's easy for me to be friends with God. But once he starts refining my character and I start going under this, this pressure, you know, what Jesus went through in the Garden of Gethsemane, the olive press where Jesus is being pressed, and when I start to be pressed, I, I tend to get a little bit agitated with God because what's coming out is not always the holiness and God says, I'm trying to draw that out so the Holy Spirit can fill you with what should be in you. And it's hard for me to follow God real close at that point because life is tough. And Peter's in the same situation. He's following him at a distance and saying, I, I, I want to keep an eye on him because there's still something about this. I don't want to give up. I don't know if you've talked to people where they say, I've, I've not given up on God, but I've given up on church. And so they, they kind of follow God at the distance, but they don't want to engage in the messiness of the relationships. Church is messy, by the way. I mean, the relationships, we're humans. We're not perfect. And so church gets messy because the vulnerability of relationships. And I can only say this from experience because there were several years in, in my life that that was my mentality. I've given up on the church, but I haven't given up on God. I don't want to be involved in the messiness and, and all the stuff and the junk that goes on in church, but I love God. And what I found is I started missing out. As I followed at a distance, I started missing out on the relationships. And, and honestly, as vulnerable as they, they are, and, and sometimes just how it's just, just, you know, just human relationships can be messy. But I started to long for that and thought, I'm tired of watching that from a distance and I want to engage in that. And I found that as just as much there's a chance of hurt, there's a chance of help and life and encouragement. And that's, that, honestly, that's why I'm here. You know, I'm, we're following God. We're giving God glory for everything, but we're here to get engaged with life with each other 
so that we can live our purpose and live it in a community that we can encourage each other and help each other and spur one another on. And yeah, we, we, it's not going to be perfect, but Peter's following Jesus at a distance. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I'm able to to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. See, Jesus is the Word. John referred to him, The Word became flesh. And the flesh moved into the neighborhood. Jesus wrote the story. Jesus is the story. And Jesus is is the truth. He's the way and he's the life. And, And here we're seeing the false witnesses come against Jesus. And they're taking the word and they're twisting it for their benefit. They're giving false testimony. I don't know if you've ever been guilty of this. I I know I have, where I I try to find my cause, and instead of finding my cause in the words and the truth of Scripture, I find my cause in the concordance. In the back of your Bible, there's a concordance. And what I've done is gone to the concordance and thought, how do I topically find what I want to, to bend my way? And then I go and I will look at that one verse, and I will say, this God wants me to have everything. And, and that works for about three and a half seconds. About as long as it takes me to read that verse out of context. One thing that you will hear me, this is a soapbox for me. Context is everything. I mean, we can't pull one verse out of Scripture and build our entire theology build our entire doctrine, and build our entire philosophy of what we think God's going to do for me. And what was happening is these men were coming forward and they were pulling the words of Jesus out of context and using it to get their way. What was their way? They wanted the financial gain. They wanted, this, they wanted the comfort of their religious system because they had built power. They had built a system where people had to serve them. You see, in in God's economy, and what Jesus is teaching us is that we are the servants, that we are the givers, that, that we are humble, and we seek righteousness and truth and justice. And that was absolutely void of this system. And Jesus has brought these accusations, and he's silent. I'm convinced of something that, you know, well, we'll go on. That's a soapbox. (laughs) The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. And Jesus says, yes, it is as you say. But I say to all of you, in the future, you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. And here's where the the physical pain starts. They spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us. 
Christ who hits you. You see, we've been walking through Scripture over the last several weeks, looking at the suffering that Jesus has endured, the, the mental anguish, the desertion, the stress. We're going to look here at some accusations and false accusations. I, I'm convinced that uh, Jesus is the perfect lamb, and the reason he was silent up to this point is because he was keeping it all in. You've got to understand something. As Jesus walked the road to the cross, Jesus denied himself every day so that when he went to the cross, he was the perfect lamb. We think that the greatest sacrifice Jesus makes is on the cross, and rightfully so, but I think we need to also understand that every day, Jesus sacrificed himself to the will of the Father. You've heard me say this to you before, husbands, men... If you are married, I've asked the question, would you die for your wife? If you are not yet married, guys, you need to think, would I die for this woman? I mean, I can tell you without, without a doubt, I would give my life for my wife. Without question. But here's the reality. Very few of us are going to be put in a situation to physically give our life for a wife. But spiritually, are you willing to die every day to your desires, your passion, your selfishness for your wife? Now that doesn't give her the excuse or opportunity to abuse that sacrifice. But you see where the sacrifice has greater meaning. I mean, if Jesus had lived selfish and however he wanted and then went to the cross and died... I don't think we would see the sacrifice as great. If I live as, as, a, as a jerk to my wife and my family, and I live selfishly in my way, and then I have to stand up and physically give my wife, life for my kids and my wife, I think at the funeral they're gonna be, they, they, they'll honor me and go, I'm so grateful that he gave his life for us so that we could have life. But that's not how he lived. So do we live sacrificially? so that when we die to ourselves, the sacrifice is more meaningful. And Jesus, I, I, I can only imagine right here that, that the power that Jesus is suppressing, He is God. I mean, think about the power of God. He holds and sustains everything in His right hand. Life happens because of Him. He stepped into nothing and created it. He created, he spoke it to be. And here is the power indwelling in Jesus. And he is sitting here taking these accusations. I, I, I know that when I get a little bit of power and the way my thought process goes, I mean, they might be given, coming at me with accusations, but so I'm thinking, I could squash you like a grape right now. I wouldn't even have to, I could just think it, you know. That's the noise I make. Or like, you're gone. No more you. I, I, it's a good thing God doesn't give me that power. Traffic would be a lot less, by the way. You're welcome. I have found the cure for road rage. Um, talk to me about it later. Um, so Jesus is, is denying himself and becoming this perfect lamb. Isaiah prophesied about six to 700 years before this process that he would be silent before his accusers. 
You see, I'm convinced that Jesus only spoke when it was absolutely necessary and he spoke what needed to be spoken of. He didn't answer the accusations, but when they asked him, who are you? Tell us who you are. That's when he spoke. I, I, I am guilty of this. I go around and I get in these religious debates and, and I do it with other Christians. I, if somebody who does not believe in Jesus, I'm not going to argue with you. But if, if people who uh, want to sit down and discuss doctrine and theology, I'm, I'm all about that. I don't, still don't want to argue with you. But when we are questioned about God, well, why would a loving God do this? Why would God allow this to happen? There's a lot of hurt that happens and we start to question, why would God do this? You know what? I can't answer for God in that. But let me tell you what I can talk about. I can talk about who Jesus is. I can talk about his character, his love, his grace, his mercy. That although I can't answer these accusations for God, I can tell you who Jesus is. I think that's when we as the church need to stand up and talk. I think we soapbox too many issues and make our, make our platforms about everything but who Jesus is. And then we get, we get all wrapped up into everything instead of just saying who Jesus is. And that's when Jesus began to speak. I'm convinced if you get into an argument over God, not argument with God, argument over God and about God, you may have enough information to win the argument. But I can tell you what will happen is you will lose the person. And so we are not called as the church to win arguments. We are not called to score points in the debate. We are called to preach Jesus. We are called to live our lives so that people see Jesus. And so that through us, God can draw men and women unto himself. That's our charge. That's what we're supposed to do. Have you ever been falsely accused and Jesus is standing here with these accusations. I've been falsely accused. I grew up with a younger brother and two older sisters. You better believe I've been falsely accused. <laughs> I preferred my younger brother because when we fought, you hit, you beat each other up, and then 10 minutes later, you're back to playing toys. Having older sisters, that... <laughs> Men, we are not equipped for that kind of fight. Let me tell you. I'd rather go in there with mustard gas. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> That's a whole different kind of warfare, my friend. But they, they had a way, girls have a way of manipulating the situation. And uh, it wasn't just in my family. You know, in school, I was falsely, and I was rightfully accused of so many, a lot of things. <laughs> I'm not playing all high and mighty. But you know that feeling of when you're falsely accused and, and the hurt and you're like, especially if you're punished for something you didn't do, uh, then you start to feel more like a martyr and you start to weigh on this. And, you know, Jesus is, is going through this situation. And I want to talk for just the last few minutes about handling accusations uh, because I've been in conversations with people um, since we've launched the church and even before about accusations. Um, I've personally uh, faced accusations. I think every one of us have. Um, it's something that is going to, going to happen. You know, we, we're all going to be in confrontation. If you're married, you understand that. 
Um, if you are engaged or in the process of thinking about marriage, let me, let me help you for a second. You will always have confrontation. When you say, I do, it does not mean that all the fighting goes away. <laughs> Sometimes it just gets more intense. And there will be accusations, there will be trials, and there will be tests. But I want us to, to, to look at this. And as Jesus stood before the Sanhedrin, and, and knowing, and He is God, He knows what's going to happen. He knows that this is the process, this is what had been prophesied, this is what had been planned as far as His journey to the cross, that He knew this was leading up to His execution. But He still had to stand there and take the accusations. And I'm convinced that God is big enough to handle it. But I want us to look at Jesus. If we're going to live our life to reflect his character, let's look at his character and how he does handle these trials and how he does handle these accusations. Um, Let's go to Philippians 2. You're like, what? We're going out of Matthew. It's okay. It's like going to the deep end of the pool. I just took the rope off, you know. It's okay. If you're not sure where Philippians is, it's in the New Testament. If you need some help, you can go to the table of contents. Or you can sing the song, but I don't know. My pages are sticking here. Um, it is, there's no page number on mine. Philippians 2, it's on page 1154 in the Holy Bible. If you're using the iPad or the iPhone, it's under the search tab. (laughs) Philippians 2. Here's the thing. When we are under trials and under accusations, I want us to take on the attitude of Jesus. Um, I think sometimes we can use power to our, our benefit and use power to our detriment. And we're called to be humble and we're called to be meek. And, and let me give you an understanding of meek. Meek is, I have the power to crush you, but I'm extending grace. You know, it, it's, it's like I have, have the opportunity and potential to squash you like a grape, but I'm restraining that power. Think of a horse, how mighty and how powerful a horse is and how a, a bit can be placed in the mouth, and the horse can be broken. And it's, it's not breaking the power of the horse. It's using that power for a greater purpose. And so when we are under trial, I want us to use the power of the Holy Spirit for a greater purpose than our own. So Philippians 2, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion... Then make my joy complete, here it is, by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. And then here's this attitude. Your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ. And let me read to you what that attitude is. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, 
Because of Jesus' attitude, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. You see, that when we take on uh, the attitude of Jesus and humble ourselves, that when we face accusations, when we face trials, we're able to, to be like-minded with Christ. We take on that attitude. Some call it taking the high road. Taking the high road is taking the stance that is, is morally right, that is correct, that yes, it is tougher to walk because there, there's a climb involved. It takes more effort to be humble. It takes more, more energy to lay aside your own interests. But you've got, we have to take the high road. There's two instances that we have to take the high road in. There's only two. And when false accusations or accusations or trials come at us, there's two instances. The first one is take the high road when you're right. This is a hard one. If you're like me, and I'm not right very often, most of us guys are that way. We're not, especially when we're talking with our wives, we're not always right. But we, we, when we are right, we like to exploit that. And we like to display that. Like, I am right. And let me enjoy being right. You know, sometimes being right, you're going to perpetuate the wrong even longer because of our attitude when we're right. And in the workplace, when, when, when you are falsely accused or someone is pressing into you and you're facing that trial and you know you're right, man, you're ready to bring the fight. The only thing you're hoping is that you have enough documentation that you're right. Like, if you're going to come to this table, you need to have the documentation. That's what I've been told. But we like being right. You know, let me tell you, even in church, when we're right, we've got to take the high road. I mean, is it more important for me to be right and completely let someone miss the love and mercy and the grace of Jesus? so I can get my way, so that I can feel good, so that my pride can be built up because I'm right. And then take it a step further. Even when you're right and you humble yourself, leave it there. Don't walk away and 10 years later going, I was still right in that situation. Because you're carrying that. I'm telling you, you will get tired of carrying that. That is going to be the hump on your back. Okay, in 10 years in church, you're going to be like, I was right. You know? <laughs> yes, master. <laughs> Let it go. You know? Let it go. I think there's so many times spiritually we have to let it go and say it's not worth arguing. We're not about winning the argument. We want a relationship with the person. I mean, think about how many marriages end because someone is right, but they won't give in. It's not worth it. Man, we've got to humble ourselves. The value there is the meekness. I know I'm right, but I'm restraining so that we can move together. We can move forward. This is the compromise factor. 
think of compromise like this. It's not what I give up. It's what we gain. When we look at it in that context, we can move forward in relationship. Not I feel like I've given up even though I was right. So always take the high road when you're right. The only other instance is take the high road when you're wrong. Now, as much as I like to fight when I'm right, I will fight even harder when I'm wrong because you feel like you have to give a better defense, you know? Uh, I, I remember trying to defend some of the things going up as a kid, and it was just this, I don't know. Why did you do that? I don't know. <laughs> you know, and, and when you're wrong, you try to fight it even more, like I didn't do it. I mean, you, you've got the, the paint on your hands behind your back. I didn't do it. And you are fighting and fighting and fighting. When we are wrong, we perpetuate the fight by making ourselves more wrong. And here's what it opens up to. When we're wrong, we start to lie about it. And then we start believing our own lie. And then we're so far away from the truth that we're living a lie that we've convinced ourselves is the truth. And we will walk away, we will hurt people because we are defending ourselves. I mean, Jesus was right standing before the Sanhedrin. But if he, even when he, if he was wrong, he knows how to handle the situation for relationship, for redemption. I mean, when we are wrong and we're faced with accusations, we need to have this value. How about confession and repentance? Confession is simply this. It's agreement. It's saying, you know what? You're right. I'm wrong. And humbling ourselves. And this is hard to do. But this is, this is where the big boy and big girl spiritual stuff kicks in. We humble ourselves and say, you're right. I'm wrong. And we've got agreement here. And then repentance. We change. And we begin to walk together. And, and let, me, let me tell you something. What, repentance just means to turn. So think about in context of your marriage. That when you're wrong... And you can look at the other person and say, you know what, you're right and I'm wrong. I agree with this. Now let's turn together and walk out this solution. You see, marriages come under attack because someone is right and they abuse the fact that they're right. They also come under attack because someone is wrong and they won't admit they're wrong. And so what you have going on is a right and a wrong always squaring off. When if we will humble ourselves and repent and turn to each other, we can begin this process of walking into a solution. And so when we take on the attitude of Jesus and the humility of a servant, whether we're right or wrong, we're humble. And we take on the attitude of Jesus for what purpose? For the redemption. So that men and women can be reconciled to God. So that we can have that relationship with Him. So my, my challenge to you is take the high road. You know what? When you face trials, let it ring in your head. Take the high road. Take the high road. I, when I came across this this week, you know, there, there's a Scottish song... That, that goes along. And, and as a kid, I don't know where I heard this, but for 
as long as I can remember, whenever I think the high road, I hear some Scottish guy in my mind singing, you'll take the low road and I'll take the high road. And I don't, let that play in your head, okay? Thank you. You're welcome. You have a song that's stuck in your head now. So you're going to be singing, you'll take the low and I'll take the high road. You know, play the bagpipes in your head, whatever you want that to be. Let there be flutes and violins and kilts and all the fun stuff. But think it, take the high road. And so as we look at Jesus taking the high road, that high road led him to the cross. And over the next couple weeks, we're going to look at that. Next week, we're going to do something special for September 11th. I think we need to spend some time remembering. And then we're going to look in two weeks at the cross and the crucifixion from a medical perspective. And so take the high road. The high road for Jesus led him to the cross. We don't know where the high road will lead us, but here's what we have to focus on. Taking the high road will lead us to giving glory to God. And we make that choice. Let's pray. Father, we love you, and we we thank you that, that that you gave us the example of taking on the nature of a servant. Jesus, we thank you that when you faced trials, when you faced false accusations, uh, that we understand, Jesus, that that hurt when we're wrongly accused. The Father, we know that you were wrongly accused and were right. Thank you for restraining your power. Thank you for giving us insight into this situation of your life so that we can walk away with wisdom, not just knowledge, not just knowing how to handle the situation, but wisdom so that we can use that in our life to reflect you through what we face. So Jesus, I ask for the strength Would you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, give us the strength and the resolve and the strength of character and the ability to take on the attitude of Jesus when we face trials? Would you shape our character so that we can be honest? We can be honest with you and honest with ourselves. That when we're right, we're meek and we're humble. That when we're wrong, we humble ourselves and we confess and we repent. And God, we find ourselves in in situations that even with you we're wrong and we choose to defend our situation. Father, we, we find ourselves in sin that separates us from you and we choose to defend our sin knowing we're in the wrong. Would you give us the courage and the strength to agree with you about our sin and to repent and turn from that? Thank you for taking the high road. And we know that that high road led to a cross at the place of the skull. We know that that high road took you from the cross to a tomb. Father, we also know that the high road called Jesus out of the tomb. And that's that resurrection that gives us the hope. That gives us the relationship with you. Thank you for sacrificing your life for us.
not just so we could be right, but so that we could live our lives reflecting your goodness and your glory. Give us the strength this week in the situations we face to give you glory, to reflect your character, and to take the high road. We love you so much. In Jesus' name we pray.